0: Let's come to God's Word. Tonight's passage is taken from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for a patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved.
1: Well, thank you, Candice, and thank you, uh, musicians, Amy, for leading us through. Uh, Two things will help as we go through this part of Matthew's Gospel. One is a server sheet on the back of that, just a little outline for you um, as we go through so you know where we're going. And having the Bible open is a particular help. That's page 814 uh, of Matthew's Gospel. And um, we're going to be, this is our last week in Matthew for a while. We're going to be moving into our Christmas um, series, uh, Advent series from next week. In fact, it's carol services in the evening services next week. Um, So we'll leave Matthew here tonight and then we'll pick it up again at some point uh, next year. Now as we come to this passage, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, um, in Peter's letter, he prays that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that that would be true for us tonight, that we might grow in the knowledge of Jesus, that we might understand him, we might know him, and we might experience afresh his grace towards us. Help us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, Liam, if you want to stick up that slide, thank you. Uh, Now, if you remember two weeks ago, uh, we, and that's a struggle for most of us, by the way, two weeks ago, uh, we showed you this slide, which is also on the back of the handout. And that shows for you the carefully arranged uh, structure of chapters 8 to 10 of Matthew's Gospel. There are three groups of three astonishing miracles of power that show Jesus as heaven's king, as the Messiah. And they're kind of like a show home for the kingdom of heaven. They give you an early glimpse in advance of what Jesus' kingdom will look like in the future when it comes in its fullness, when Jesus returns. If you like each of these miracles, there's a different room in the show home. You go in and you look around and you see there an aspect of the brokenness of this world which will be fixed when Jesus returns. It's really amazing Stuff amazing power and authority to heal and to save, but you can see too, just interspersed between these great miracles, are sections about discipleship, about following Jesus in this life and, and what it will be like. And the reason for that is that though the kingdom is available to us to enter now by faith in Jesus, it's not yet come in its fullness. It will one day, then everything broken will be fixed, everything wrong, set right. But that's not yet. In the meantime, our expectations as disciples of Jesus need to be set rightly. This powerful and wonderful God's man Jesus Christ, is calling us to follow him, and he's also showing us what following him will be like. So two weeks ago we asked this question, what can you expect if you follow Jesus Christ? What can you expect if you choose to follow Jesus? Now the answer we found in Matthew chapter 8 was that it will be painful. There is a cost in this life to following Jesus. He calls us to an uncomfortable life a life of sacrifice. We'll need to leave stuff behind to follow him. He'll have to have our highest allegiance, even over that of those whom we love the most. Follow me, it will be painful, said Jesus. But we said then that the cost of following him is not the only thing that Jesus says about what following him is like. And tonight we're going to hear Jesus say something different. He's going to say this, Follow me, it will be joyful. Follow me, it will be joyful. Thank you. You can take the slide down now. Thank you. Now there are three scenes in our passage. Um, The first two are kind of blended together. And then there's a third scene. Uh, So let's turn to scene one. This is verses 9 to 13. Uh, Jesus calls those who know they are sick with sin to follow him. Now from the first century, this gospel, uh, this account of Jesus' life, it's been attributed to the disciple called Matthew. Um, All of the early church witnesses uh, say that he wrote uh, this account. And here we find him writing himself into the story. Jesus is in Capernaum. It's a fishing town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus there has done many, many miracles. It's where his other disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, are from. It's a fishing town. And Jesus comes into this part of the story. He comes from healing a paralytic and a declaration that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. some Astonishing things. And he comes down the road... And he bumps into our author, Matthew. This is verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now we need to recognise just how surprising it is that Jesus wants someone like Matthew to follow him. As well as being on the lake, Um, the town of Capernaum was a border town. Um, It was between two Roman provinces. So anyone wishing to trade goods across the border uh, would have to pay their taxes. So they're out by the lake. There's a customs office uh, with a booth set up at the side of the road uh, from the docks. The purpose is to to tax the fishermen and the merchants on their goods as they pass through. It had been very familiar to Jesus' fishermen disciples and they would have hated the place. And they would have hated those who worked there, people like Matthew. Because tax collectors were the scum of the earth as far as they were concerned. Just apologise if you are working for HMRC um, at the moment, it's not personal. But that's how they're seen uh, in this culture. These people took hard earned cash off of hard working people. The deal was that they were allowed to skim money off the top to line their own pockets. But even worse than that, they worked closely with the Roman occupiers. Socially, they were outcasts. Politically, they were collaborators with this oppressive regime. And religiously, they were beyond the pale. They weren't welcome in the temple nor in the synagogue. They were traitorous, thieving scum. Everybody knew it. They knew it. That's the vibe here as Jesus meets this man. When you know that, isn't what Jesus does all the more remarkable? What's he doing asking someone like Matthew to follow him? I mean, surely not Jesus. You don't want someone like him. But he walks along the road and he sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth in the middle of the day and he speaks to him just two words. Follow me. And Matthew gets up and he follows him. Now it's likely that this isn't the first time that Matthew has heard about Jesus. He's probably been sitting there all week, watching what's been going on, hearing about Jesus and the stories and about the healings, the casting out of demons, the teaching. We're told earlier on in the Gospel that Jesus has become famous in this region. When Jesus calls him, though, there is no hesitation, is there? His response is immediate. He's almost reckless in abandoning his previous way of life. He just walks away from it all to follow Jesus. Matthew was probably pretty wealthy, tax collector, you're a pretty uh, good way to get rich quick. He's making a financial sacrifice to follow Jesus. But at the same time, being in his line of work, Wasn't pleasant. He's been rejected and spat upon by his own people because of his job. Every day he would have got abuse from his neighbours who hate him. He has to live with that. But now he's seen and heard about Jesus. And Jesus offers him a chance at a new life, a fresh start. And something in his heart changes and he grabs with both hands the opportunity to begin again with Jesus. Not only that, he does what new converts to Jesus have been doing ever since. He invites all his friends to meet Jesus too. The next scene, scene two, is one of a party. And have a look who's in attendance, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and we're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is Matthew's community. It's his fellow tax collectors. He gets them to join him and Jesus for this dinner party. And also those referred to as sinners. These are the sort of morally kind of corrupt, irreligious people, people who live their lives without reference to God or to his words. These are the people, to use an old term, who are the undesirables, They're those on the outside of respectable society. And it doesn't take long for the respectable religious leadership to notice what's going on, does it? The Pharisees show up. Pharisees are outraged. Outraged that a rabbi like Jesus would even talk to folk like this, let alone enter their house, let alone have a meal with them. It is scandalous behavior. And they would never do this themselves. They feel these people are beneath them. That they would sort of dirty them in some way if they were to go near them. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, the, the Pharisees, they question not Jesus, but his disciples about this. Perhaps they're trying to put them off from following him. Are you sure you want to be associated with a man who does things like this? This is verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's so self-righteous, isn't it? It's so arrogant. They think so much of themselves, so little of others. And of course, they can't understand. Well, Jesus hears the complaint. And listen to his answer, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is with these people because they're sick, and he is the doctor that they need to cure them. And what is their sickness? Well, it's a terminal illness. It's the same thing that all humanity is sick with it's a sickness that leads to death. The sickness of sin. It's like a cancer of the soul and it's killing all of us. We are sinners in need of the eternal cure. Of Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus says he came. He came to this earth to call sinners to follow him in faith so that they might receive the forgiveness of sins that he offers through his death on the cross. And this is great news for people like Matthew, isn't it? Matthew's a man who knows he's a sinner, a sinner against God and a sinner against his people, his neighbors. People like Matthew and his friends. Well, they can be accepted into God's kingdom because they recognize that they are sick with sin. They come to the great physician, the great doctor, to receive the cure of his forgiveness. Jesus has wonderfully good news for people like that. In fact, we heard this first a few weeks ago, back in chapter 8. Matthew quoted from Isaiah 53, the servant song, where it says that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. When Jesus went to the cross, he carried in his body everything that was wrong with us. He was making a way to deal with our sickness, our great sickness, our sin. And he died in our place to provide a cure. All we have to do is recognise that we're sick and accept the cure that he offers by believing in him. It's wonderful news. wonderful news for those who know and admit that they're sick with sin. It's reason to follow him and follow him with great joy. However, People will not listen to a doctor until they're convinced that there's something wrong with them. Isn't that true? It's possible to be terribly sick, but convince yourself that everything's fine. And if you're sure that everything's fine, well, you won't accept the cure that the doctor offers, will you? You won't think you need it. Look at the Pharisees. What Jesus says here is not good news for them. He says, you are just like the people of Hosea's day. Proud of your religious observance. Their sacrifices to God. But neglecting mercy to those who are in need. You need to go and read Hosea, says Jesus. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The righteous says Jesus, that is the self-righteous. Well, they think they have no need of him. They think they're well and they don't need a cure. They don't think they need his forgiveness. And worse, they don't want to risk infection by going near anyone else who is sick, the sinners. They're so concerned with their own religious observance with their own moral purity, that they despise those and they stay away from those who don't seem to be pure like them. But God's heart is for people in that desperate kind of need. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says God. See, these Pharisees, they're condemned because they have no mercy in them for those who have such need for salvation. They're outraged at Jesus' behaviour. This isn't right, they say. This isn't what God's man should be doing. He doesn't eat with us. Why is he eating with them? But they never invite him to their home. He's not wanted by those who who think they are righteous. Those who don't think they need their sins forgiven. Because, well, they don't think they've really sinned. It's quite sad, I think, the Pharisees here in this part of the story, they, this kind of person, they don't have a part in the kingdom. They don't want to be in the kingdom because the kingdom's full of sinners. Don't be like them. Don't be too proud to admit that you're in desperate need of a saviour. And that closes the second scene. Bad news and a warning for those who are self-righteous, those who think they have no need of forgiveness, but wonderful news for sinners, for those who confess their desperate need and who leave everything to follow him. There is a cure to the terminal illness of sin, the cross of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that he offers to those who trust in him. Scene 3 this is verses 14 to 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the swine skins. And so both are and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now what's going on here? Here, it's a little confusing um, when you first read it, so let's just take it uh, bit by bit. Verse 14, first of all. We read in verse 14 that some disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, uh, they seek out Jesus and they ask him about fasting. Now, in the Old Testament law, um, there was only one fast that was required, uh, and that was on the Day of Atonement, just one day a year. But by the time of Jesus' day, by the time Matthew writes his gospel, fasting had become something done by pious Jews on a weekly basis. And one report that I read uh, said that uh, on Mondays and Thursdays each week they would fast. So it's become a regular thing. And actually, we know from chapter 6, we heard about fasting in chapter 6. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? We heard there that the religious folk of Jesus' day they made a big public spectacle out of their fasting. Jesus said they made sure to look really gloomy when they did it, that they disfigured their faces so that their fasting would be seen by others. So fasting had become something that religious people did so that others would know how serious they were about their piety. The more miserable they were, the more holy they were. That's the equation. And I wonder if you've ever heard sentiment like that expressed, where holiness is equated with sort of somber seriousness. The more you think about it, the more you can think well, actually, there are lots of church traditions that seem to kind of suck the joy out of Christian worship, aren't there? And maybe we too can start to do that as well. We can think that uh, I need to be really serious all the time in order to make sure that I'm keeping uh, on the right line. I wonder if you've ever slipped into that kind of attitude. It's been noted that Jesus' disciples are like that. They stand out. These other guys, they fast from food a lot, and the Pharisees do too, but Jesus' disciples don't. Why is that, they say? Implied in the question is an accusation, I think, that Jesus is not serious enough about sin, or is indifferent when it comes to matter of holiness. After all, he goes to parties with sinners, doesn't he? He's too joyful to be a serious religious heavyweight. This topic will come up again in chapter 11. You can read that uh, later on. Anyway, Jesus answers their question with a question of his own, as he often does. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Things are different for my disciples, he explains. He says, my disciples, they're not at a funeral. They're at a wedding. They don't display somber misery. No, they're overjoyed because they're with me, the bridegroom. Jesus is saying here that he has come as the Messiah. And his coming is like that of a bridegroom come to a wedding feast. That's just too good to react to with fasting, isn't it? You don't fast at a wedding, you feast. That's what's appropriate here. Now, in calling himself the bridegroom. Jesus is picking up on Old Testament language. Places like Hosea, I think he has in mind. Where God has described himself as the husband of his people. Jesus, the son of God, is the one who has committed himself in covenant love to his people. And he's come to earth. He's here And that's cause for great joy. The absence of fasting and mourning in his band of disciples is a witness to the presence of God the bridegroom in their midst. Notice though that there is a time coming when mourning will be appropriate for the disciples of Jesus. The time will be coming when he will be taken away when he will die as a substitute for their sins. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Then's the time for sadness at sin and remorse that our sins have needed his sacrifice. Then's the time for godly sorrow and for repentance. Fasting's appropriate then, but not now, says Jesus, while I'm with them. Well, my disciples must be joyful. Following me means experiencing wedding-like joy. And then we get these two pictures. Jesus gives two pictures here. I think they're making the same point. Now, by the way, um, just so you know, I'm not an expert on sewing. Uh, Neither am I an expert on wine um, for that matter, so I had to look this stuff up. Um, Apparently, you don't sew a patch of new material uh, onto an old one, because what happens when the garment gets wet is is that the new patch shrinks at a different rate to the old garment, and so it makes an even bigger hole in the garment. It, It sort of pulls away the stitching and the garment with it, and it rips a bigger hole. And the piece of clothing will then be totally unusable and ruined. And apparently you don't put new wine into old wineskins. skins. Uh, we use bottles these days, but they used animal skins uh, rather than corked bottles. And they were basically good for one batch of wine. Uh, but after that, they became hard and inflexible. You couldn't use them. Again, you don't put new wines into the old ones because when it ferments, it creates, it expands, and it creates this pressure inside the container. And the old ones would just burst. They weren't flexible anymore. And you'd spill all the wine. Now, you put new wine into a new skin because it's got that room to expand and to stretch. So those are the pictures, but it's another question to work out what they're all about, isn't it? What's he saying? Well, it's the similarities in the pictures we're supposed to see. They both have something old and worn out. An old worn out cloak, an old dried up wineskin, And they both have something new, bright new material, wonderful fresh new wine. So here's the point he's making that he's doing something new and wonderful. You can't just patch up the old tired religious system of the Pharisees and their like. You can't just freshen up the shriveled and dry, miserable practices that they employ as a means of trying to get right with God. No, what's needed is something new. New wine, new wineskins. It's a picture of joy. New wine in the Old Testament prophets was a gift of God. It was a blessing that came to his people in times of renewal and refreshment. It was a source of joy. And of course, what do you need new wine for? Well, you need it to prepare for a party, for a wedding feast. Jesus is telling these men, look, if you're going to be my disciples, well, you need to be ready for something new and fresh, something joyful. Why? Because you'll be with me. You'll be with the bridegroom. We began by asking the question that we asked a few weeks ago What can you expect if you choose to follow Jesus? The answer we heard in Matthew 8 was that it would be painful, it would be costly, it would be a life full of sacrifice. But here we learn that it is at the same time a life full of great joy. Why? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons. Reason number one for joy. Jesus is the doctor. He's the one who can cure us from the terminal illness of sin. He came for sinners... He's the one whose death on the cross in our place means we can be forgiven. What more joyful news is there than one who has a terminal diagnosis suddenly getting the all clear? That's what Jesus' death means for sinners like you and me who turn and follow him in faith. That's reason number one for joy the forgiveness of our sins. Here's number two. When we follow him, Jesus says, we will experience a new kind of wedding-like joy. Not joy in life circumstances. There'll still be cost and sacrifice and pain. Not joy in life circumstances, but joy because of who shares those circumstances with us. We get to be with Jesus. Jesus in this passage says that there'll be a time, there'll come a time when he'll be taken away. The cross. And that will be a sad time of mourning. But that's not how the gospel ends, is it? It ends with his resurrection from the dead. And after he's he's raised, he meets with his disciples, and there he commissions them to go out into the world to make disciples, and then he makes a promise to them. These are the very last words of Matthew's gospel. This is what Jesus says. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The bridegroom is with his disciples, with us by his spirit now to the end of the age until we meet him and we experience the wedding feast in all its fullness. We have the joy of knowing Jesus with us. Follow me, it will be joyful. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus is the doctor, the one who can cure us, the one who can save us. Oh Lord, we praise you for the joy that we have in knowing our sins are forgiven and that we have life in place of death. Our Father too that we thank you so much that your son Jesus Christ is with us by his spirit even now as we sit here together. We thank you for the joy that that gives us, even in the midst of all of life's mess and all of the cost and pain that's going on. We can know the joy of Jesus' presence. And we praise you in his name. Amen.